Hello and welcome to another episode of The Heart Chamber. I am your host, Boots Knighton. Today, I interview my fellow heart warrior friend, Rob Thornett. Rob is a former myocardial bridge patient who had unroofing surgery at Stanford in 2018. He is the administrator of the Facebook Myocardial Bridge Support Group, which is how I came to know him. He also wrote the Wikipedia page on myocardial bridges, as well as the FAQ document found on the Facebook site. Rob is an educator and a writer who teaches college and secondary social sciences and environmental science. He has taught in seven countries and was first diagnosed with the myocardial bridge while teaching in China. In fact, you will be able to find his Chinese medical report at the Heart Chamber podcast on Instagram. Please join Rob and I for a very insightful conversation. And if you find this episode helpful, I hope you'll go to my website, theheartchamberpodcast.com and leave a review and even make a donation. Donations help me keep this podcast going. Thanks again for spending your time with me today. Let's dive in. Rob, thanks so much for being with us today. I first became acquainted with Rob through social media when I was embarking on my heart journey. And thankfully, Rob was so generous in guiding me along at the beginning. And I wanted to bring Rob on today uh, as another story, but also to highlight the importance of social media when you're undergoing a really scary health situation. So Rob and I have a lot to talk about today. I want you to start off with like where you live now and your heart journey. Just fill us in. Yeah. Well, thank you. Well, it's, it's great to meet you for the first time because we did talk so much on, on Facebook when you, when you were looking for a diagnosis and you were one of the people mm -hmm. that came on and was asking all kinds of good questions. And so I think your case moved along much faster than a lot of people because you were just kept pressing forward with it. In other words, you didn't, you could see something was up with what you were being told by your doctors and you knew it was like not quite right. But you didn't just take that and say, okay, and kind of scratch your head for a year. So you, you actually went forward and really kept asking me questions, kept asking other people, you know, doctors questions, and it really moved fast. So I really remember that because mm -hmm. not everybody does that, you know, so it's really cool. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I'm from Virginia originally, like the DC suburbs, uh, Northern Virginia. And um, I won't go into my whole life story, but basically I became a teacher after doing some computer stuff, getting their internet stuff. And... Long story short, I became an international schools teacher. So I live in Panama uh, for the last three and a half years, and I've taught a bunch of different uh, countries, about seven different countries. And I had the issue my whole life. I never knew quite what it was. You know, one of those, like, like so many people on our site, you just had something you knew was off and you just don't know what it is. And went to probably emergency room type of clinics about five times, you know, in Northern Virginia, multiple times pointing, pointing right to what I know now was the myocardial bridge, like pointing right to it, telling people that I knew oh, there's something going on right here. And <laughs> you get the eye rolls and you get the, oh, there he goes again. You know, he thinks he has something. He has thinks he has a disease, you know, and it's not their fault. They don't know, you know, so, and it makes you worry about yourself. You're thinking, am I crazy? But so many people have had that same story on our site, right? Kind of like, am I crazy? Doctors telling you it's anxiety, it's all in your head. That's probably the most common thing that happens on our site 
is people get told that they have anxiety and it's all in their head because there, there is, it's, 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 it's ironic because there is anxiety, but it's anxiety caused by your, your heart being, having its uh, main artery that feeds it squashed every heart, you know, so, which tells the, the brain is, is a, we're not getting enough oxygen here. So basically after a lifetime of, I've always played sports. I know you're super athletic, right? You ski, you're all over the mm -hmm. place doing stuff. That's mm -hmm. a myth we can de debunk right off the bat which is a common myth that people are told by doctors. Oh, you couldn't possibly have a myocardial bridge because people with myocardial bridges, they can't do anything. They just sit there. They can't do it. It's complete nonsense. You have a professional athlete named Bobby Ryan, who was a professional MLS soccer player, died of a heart attack. Only thing they found, myocardial bridge. World-class cyclist named Mario Cipollini, sprinter. Myocardial bridge. Had to stop cycling the last couple of years. Had some kind of surgery. So you get the picture, but... I played, you know, varsity baseball in high school. I played tons of basketball, played football when I was a kid, played like just all kinds of stuff. I still lift weights. I was working out even with the myocardial bridge when I was in my forties. So it actually, a lot of people, it makes you feel better when you, when you exercise because, you know, your whole body gets involved in circulation instead of just the heart. So, um, makes a lot of people feel better. And I always give the same example, but we had a guy on our site who was a competitive cyclist. He was doing like long distance cycling races and he said, I I'd bicycled like 35 miles, something like that, around the shoreline. Came back, and I was, felt great. Came back, sat down to write some emails, and then I passed out. Just writing some emails. And that, that's a lot of people's experience. You know, they exercise. I, had, I don't know if you had the same thing, where you exercise, and like next couple, three, four, five hours, you just feel like garbage. I don't know if you have that feeling. Oh, yeah. I don't know. Mm -hmm. just, you have that down. It's just really bad. I don't know. We never quite pinpointed why that was. It's still an open mystery, but, but I think a lot of people have that kind of post-exercise funk or whatever. But I had that for years. So no one could figure out what it was. And so long story short, I was teaching in China. This would be 2017. No, I'm sorry, 20, beginning of 2018. And I came back from, from a break in the Western China up in the mountains, a high-altitude city called Kunming. I was up there. And the altitude was killing me, you know, because already you're not getting enough oxygen to your heart. I had no idea why. I was like, what's wrong with me? You know, and I saw people from other countries coming and visiting, you know, rugby teams coming in. They have like running around and I could, all of a sudden I could barely walk down the street, 10 blocks to get from my hotel to this restaurant I would eat at. And I was like, there is something wrong here. So after a long story short, I, I came back to a regular altitude city called Shenzhen in China, which is across from Hong Kong, where I taught. And the day I came back, the night, I had some kind of episode. Uh, I, I don't know what it was, but, you know, maybe a piece of plaque broke off that, as they say, right before the myocardial bridge and got stuck somewhere. I don't know. But it was a, a definitely a, one of those, like, big time, like, alert, alert episodes. And I was just lying there in a hotel, you know, in the dark. I was like, oh, gosh, you know, it's just bad. Next morning, I, I didn't know what to do. I felt groggy and out of it. Called long distance. Called my brother. I hadn't talked to him in years. It's been a couple of years now. And. I said, I had something wrong with my heart last night. I don't know what it was. He started screaming, go, go to the doctor, go to the doctor. I was like, okay, I know, I know, I know. He's like, go to the doctor. I was like, okay. So first I was going to go across to Hong Kong, which is more modern, et cetera. Then they told me, okay, that's going to take forever. Just go near Shenzhen, which is a pretty modern city. So I went to the emergency room. I'll cut through it. Basically, I went to the emergency room multiple times at multiple hospitals. One told me I had gallstones or I might have gallstones. Then they checked for gallstones, no gallstones. Then I went to another emergency room on the other side of the city. It told me, I, the guy gave me a long, he listened to me, like, you know, listened to the patient. He went, listened to me for like 10 minutes. He's like, I think you need to get better sleep. <laughs> he gave me this 15 oh, minute gosh. meal about why I needed better sleep. 
So I'm like, oh my God. I said, look, I don't have gallstones. I sleep fine. You know, it's not, it's not the problem. I need a heart test. I need a CT scan. Can you do it? You know? And they're like, well, I don't think you have a problem. I'm like, can I pay cash? So I paid like, I think $600. I forget what it was. Six, $700 cash. Went out to a suburban hospital, got the test out there. This is, took me about a week to get scheduled. I'm, all, I'm just doing this alone too. So, and went out there, did the CT, something else too. I think a brain CT or something. I don't know what, but, but the chest CT, long story short, revealed that, well, first of all, it came spitting out of, 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 of almost like a vending machine. It was like a piece of film, you know, um, like a giant Gosh. piece of film with all these little, you know, little, uh, yeah, little f- frames on it. And you normally see that on your CD, but my CD didn't work. And so I was like, it was all in Chinese. So I'm like, oh God. So can you, the film, you, you put your number into the machine and it spits out the film. So I get this big piece of film. I'm like, what am I looking at? And then there's a piece of paper that comes with it all in Chinese. So I went, I went up to the, to the nurse's station and I said, look, I, I'm leaving, but like, I don't even know what this says. And he says, it's some kid who's like 22 years old, you know, a nurse with a He just looks at it. He's like, no, it's okay. <laughs> it's okay. And I was like, what? Um, but, but, yeah. so I look at the bottom and there's a little note at the bottom, you know, like something colon something in Chinese. And I'm like, well, it looks like a note, like something beyond something, you know, like, what does that say? So he's like, I don't know. Can, I, well, can you translate it? And he's like, okay. So he translates it in Bing Translate because Google's blocked in China. So Bing Translate says myocardial bridge, left anterior descending artery, mid LAD, mid left anterior descending artery. I'm like, what is that? He's like, no, it's okay. It's okay. It's no big deal. And so I, I, I was standing in front of this kid, just like, okay, they found something. It gave me some excitement that somebody found something. You know that feeling, right? When you get that first something, oh, yes. so somebody, yeah, somebody finally found something, right? 45, you know, yours. Uh, uh, validation. Some kind of validation. Exactly. Some kind of validation. Mm-hmm. That like, no, it's not just you. It's not the eye rolls and everything. And so I, I binged it. I, I uh, searched it right there in front of the guy myocardial bridge. And I, I found this, I said, you know, normally benign, but can cause this, this, and this. I'm like, oh, that's it. And I said, it's not okay. <laughs> this guy. And I walked out, right? So I felt like, like I had some possible, you know, like you're a ship and you've been lost for like forever. And you finally found some, you know what I mean? Like you see a glimmer, like a dove, you know, whatever, flying overhead, going somewhere, some island somewhere. You have a clue that there might be something. But I think so many people have the same type of story, but just in a different, another weird way. Like everyone was diagnosed, it seems like in some odd way, you know, it's never the mm-hmm. right way. Once in a while, they do it like the normal way, but it's usually like some strange way. So my strange way was that. And then, you know, so I walk out to the, this is this giant communist hospital, you know, a massive uh, platform in front of marble, you know, with these huge steps. No one's there. It's like two o'clock on a Tuesday or something. And I'm standing there with this guy with shorts and a piece of film in his hand on this gargantuan, looks like a museum front or something, looking out and there's no one there. And I'm like, just this guy staying there, this American guys, you know, broken Chinese, like, what do I do? <laughs> and so it's always remember that, just that feeling of staying there. Like, I'm just like out here alone, but I got this one little tiny piece. I got this one piece of knowledge that I didn't have before. And you know what I mean? At least I got that. Right. So I went well, back and to the I, house. If I could yeah. interrupt you. I'm yeah, just yeah, yeah. still stuck on the fact that you're looking at this report in Chinese and you had, yeah. you were able to glimmer from it that there was something noted there. Like yeah. I'm just still there because yeah. you could have just walked away and not ever had that translated for you. I think about that a lot. Yeah. 
And, and I think that's what happens when you, when you go 45 years and, you, and you, you're tired of it. You're going to ask that one last question. Do you know what I mean? You, that's, mm-hmm. that's, that you, you're going to go that one extra step. I think that's part of it. Yeah. You know? like, yeah. Um, it was very, I just think about the awareness that that took. And mm-hmm. then for you to press this, this young man to, no, please translate this for me. And he yeah, was ready yeah. just to like see you on your way. And you're like, no, 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 no. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's the, that's like PhD level advocating for yourselves. But anyway, continue. Well, just, just to make a connection on that to, to other people's cases, mm-hmm. you know, uh, probably your case too, that, you know, that's in China, you know, that's a kid in China doing that, telling me something that was not quite right. Okay. He can be forgiven, right? He's, just, he's a nurse in China, whatever. Not because it's right. China, but because they have some smart people there. And, and by the way, let me just say, nobody found it in the United States. It took, it took some radiology. I was thinking I should fly back there and I should find this guy in the back and ask who was on duty that day. Well, who's the radiologist that's fine? They put that on there because he could have saved my life and find that guy and give him like a, a new electric car or something. I don't know if they, they make electric cars. <laughs> okay. but, but, but anyway, wow. I don't know what, but like he deserves a medal. So it's not just like China has a lot of smart people. Don't get me wrong. It's not, it's not the China problem. What I was going to say was that, okay, that's that situation. But you know from the site, right? We have people on our site at major hospitals, I won't name any, but who had the diagnosis on their report. And then it took three, four, five years for somebody to actually tell them. The doctor saw it right there, didn't even bother to say it to the patient. That's a bigger problem, you know, than this some kid who's 22. You know what I mean? That, that a doctor who should know better and just, you know, anybody keeping up with the medical literature ought to know that my, I mean, it's, it's long been <laughs> 50 years ago, they knew myocardial conversions were a problem when they're doing surgery. Mm-hmm. So anyway, and that's but, why it's so important to read the doctor's notes and to read the reports yourself. I mean, you have to, you know, get a quick education on how to read medical lingo, but you know, there's, yeah. you can look up terms and I mean, that's what Absolutely. I had to do at the start. I had to teach myself. And luckily, you know, my undergraduate degree is in biology. So I have education around how to read reports and a broad vocabulary. But I still had to look up a lot of the terms. I mean, you have to go to school in order to read your own reports, but it's worth it. Right. That's right. And, and that's kind of where I was I, at, at the beginning stage. I was at the lost yeah. trying to figure it out stage. So like, a lot, I, you know, now it's different. I'm, this is like over four years later, but. That's what I was. And it wasn't that long ago. So, you know, I totally remember that. And so how did I get from, well, basically I went back to this hotel and was big, was binging like crazy. I was like, okay, Biocardio Bridge, who, do, who can solve this problem? Who's that? What do you do with this? You know? And I found some guy in Pittsburgh. I mean, uh, Philadelphia, some guy who does robotic surgery. He mentioned he did something. Turned out it was a bust because he just did a bypass. It's just not the right surgery. It's a, it's a secondary surgery, but not a primary. But Stanford's name came up. Stanford, Stanford, Stanford. So I was like, oh, okay. Stanford has all these magazine stories about it. It's like, oh, okay. Stanford actually might know something about this. And so I Googled Stanford, the people that might be, that I could talk to at Stanford. So I found the surgeon, Dr. Jack Boyd, who ended up being the guy that did my surgery. And I emailed him. I said, I see you have some papers. Help me. You're like, what can I do? How do I do this? Luckily, he got back to me within like a day or two. And he forwarded me to Dr. Schnitger, Dr. S. I know you talked to you right at Stanford yourself. Who was the um, the team leader there? She's kind of the administrative leader of the of the myocardial. First of all, they have a team. <laughs> Nobody's got a team. Like now, there's a couple other teams, but they're just following Stanford's team. You know, Stanford was the first mm-hmm. one to have a team, and it's a really good team. It's a, you know they have like top notch surgeon, top notch cath person, top notch uh, 
radiologists, uh, all these people were top notch. So Dr. Russ says, Dr. Snicker says, okay, you can either DHL me those, those, uh, that piece of film, which is going to take maybe a couple of weeks. I don't know. It's from China. It's going to cost you a hundred dollars, whatever. Or you could take pictures of it with your phone and send it to me. I said, you sure that's going to work? It's like, yeah, I can just take pictures. Like, all right. Cause this is old school, you know? So this is like, they probably learned on the film back in the day. So I put it up against the hotel window. So you can imagine me, I'm in the hotel, like with the windows coming in skyscrapers all around. I'm about the 25th floor and through the film, you can see the next skyscraper over. I'm taking pictures on my phone of the different, I have no idea what I'm even looking at. I'm just like taking pictures. Taking, and I, and I send her all the pictures next day. She says her and Donna, the nurse, she says, you should come, you should come in. We, we see the bridge. It's definitely there. You should come in. And when Stanford tells you you should come in, it means they see something. Then then I can be like, yeah, yeah maybe yeah. kind of, sort of. They, they don't they mess around. Right. <laughs> they don't mess around. Yeah, for sure. Mm -mm. Yeah. So I was like, okay, good. That, that, that was, speaking of affirmation and validation, that was like mega. That was like, you know, just getting the piece of information in Chinese, but then actually having Stanford tell you that that's real was like mm -hmm. huge. And by the way, a side note, like looking at it, I spent the next, I don't know, six months staring at that film, not having any idea what I was even looking at. And now I can look at it and I, I can teach a three-year-old how to find the myocardial bridge, but I literally spent like, is that it? Is it this piece? Is it what? I wonder if it's that. You tell that and me. I literally was going around. Yeah. Later, later. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So making a long story short, I went home. I flew back to the United States. I couldn't stay in China anymore. So I had to get the surgery. And it took me about a month to, to get up insurance. I had to get my insurance going, cost $700 a month in Massachusetts, uh, out of pocket, just like a private plan, Blue Cross Blue Shield PPO. And then I had to pay the deductible on top of that, another 7000 So 700 a month plus 7000 which to a lot of people was a lot of money, but it paid for a heart operation that cost, I don't know, 150, 200000 something like that. And I never received even a bill after the operation. Never even received a bill. It was all just paid for. So, you know, yeah. it, is, it is what it is. Um, right. And by the way, if, if anybody is stuck out there and can't get surgery and, or too expensive or whatever it is, you have options. I live in Panama. There's a guy in Panama who says he'll do it right here. He's, he's did a heart transplant. It's, it, you have to, it's, roofing surgery is usually not that difficult. Didn't your, didn't your surgeon say it was a piece of cake? I think the one you had. Oh, yeah. 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 But, you know, yeah. but also mine was, it was easy, but it wasn't because I had multiple mm. bridges on multiple arteries. Mm. So, you know, he said, yeah, that, that it was standard and fine. But for me personally, in my heart, it was a lot of cutting. Yeah. You had, how many bridges did you have? Like five or something like that? Three. Or, yeah, I had oh, three. Three? It's like the yeah. ones we don't usually hear about, like OM and there's, there's other Yeah, ones, OM1 right? and OM2, the obtuse marginal branches, and then obviously yeah. the LAD. Yeah. Yeah. Those other two... We, don't come up very often, but they do like the other ones do come up like the RCA, OM, and they do cause symptoms. It's, it's yeah. just because it hasn't been studied. Yeah. Much and my surgeon said, yeah. you know, my OMs were, my obtuse marginals were bridged enough that they were probably causing problems, but it was more the LAD yeah. than anything because mine went down to the ventricle. Oh, wow. So, you, so yours was one of the, well, I was about to caveat that, that when we say it's usually a pretty simple surgery, I was going to say, unless it's super deep. And in yours case, mm -hmm. it was, right? But he yeah. still said it was a piece yeah. of cake, didn't he, I think, right? Yeah, yeah he amazing. just, but I think he's yeah. just a ninja at what he got this. Yeah, right. Well, okay. 
he just he just kind of like the Willie Mays of uh, just like makes everything looks easy, right? Like like Willie Mays. Yeah, yeah um, it's mind blowing. Yeah, it's really. I mean, and yeah, it's some of these guys. What they do is incredible. Like Dr. Boyd at Stanford, and then the guy at Chicago, mm-hmm. and the guy that you had. Two of those. They, they've they've had people whose whose LEDs have gone through the through the heart muscle into the chamber where the blood hangs out. And then they just make a hole to get it out. And then they just patch the hole up during the surgery. They put a hole in your heart, then patch it up to get, right. get their artery out. It's, I don't even know how they do that, but it's incredible. Yeah. So yeah, no, I, I just uh, was basically went into a holding pattern for, you know, living with relatives for like the next, geez, it was like from about the end of April to, I had surgery before Christmas. And that's a I long time just, to be in a holding pattern. It was a weird holding pattern. Yeah, exactly. Because first I got Stanford, you know, told me go out there. And then I was like, maybe I should just go out there, just go. But I was like, well, I heard about this robotic surgery, robotic assisted surgery, which is like, it's the surgeon doing it, but it's a robot that does the actual work. And the robot can get so fine, like finer than even a human hand can get and a human eye too, because they magnify it. I really wanted to get that. And honestly, if I could do it again, I, I would have got, I would have done that not because there's anything wrong, but just because that's to me, why go through a much worse recovery when you don't have to, when we have technology. Mm-hmm. The reason I didn't right. was because I just couldn't, I couldn't find anybody to do it. So I spent, I spent the next May, June, July, like the next seven months, I guess. I taught in the fall at two very, very bad schools, unfortunately, <laughs> very rough schools, last minute jobs. And it was brutal going to work, you know, feeling like I could really stand up. And yeah, describe what, what your symptoms was, were by now, yeah. because like, you know, you had that one bad incident in China that got you yeah. into the hospital, but like, were you mm-hmm. deteriorating over the next many weeks? Cause that's what happened to it me. Was a, yeah. I think what happens is something, I, I don't know exactly, but something slips in there, a plaque moves this way, something, and then people just get worse, you know? Yeah. I mean, for me, what that meant was even when I was still in China waiting to come home, like that month I was about to, I was get my flight and everything like it was basically me getting up in the morning feeling tired from the moment I walked up like just totally and just like okay I'm just gonna trudge to the to the mall and I'm gonna sit in Starbucks all day long and that's what I was doing I was trudging to the mall sitting in a Starbucks for like 12 hours a day and then getting up and eating some sushi, come back to just, well because I, I wanted to be in an air-conditioned place where I could breathe because the air is denser when it's air-conditioned and they have good air okay. conditioning in Starbucks it's just tropical city and because um, I want to sit down in a comfortable chair because I'm going to be there for 12 hours. Right. So it was like, I'm not, I'm not, I, I was just like, that's where I was. And I, and again, I was like, you know, same as you, I was very athletic and everything. Yeah. So it was, and, I, and it stayed like that the whole rest of the year. You know, even when I was living in Massachusetts, waiting for surgery, relatives lived in Salem, you know, the witch trial city. I was up there and I basically get up in the morning and trudge to a coffee shop, tried to change them up each day and just sit there all day in the air conditioning. That was it. That was my life. Mm. Writing stuff, thinking about stuff, you know, just waiting to get started. And then going to, to teach, which sucked, <laughs> honestly. Mm-hmm. Up in front of kids who weren't the best behavior kids, uh, uh, you know, trudging from the parking lot to school, having difficulty just walking, and then pretending like everything's cool in front of 30 people, you know, all day long. So, yeah. So, I mean, I'm not alone. Other people have to do similar things, very difficult stuff. So, basically, I did that and just to, just to have a job and stay afloat and get the, pay for the insurance and all that. And uh, so, my, my plan was to, was to try to get the robotic surgery. And so, I found one guy in Philadelphia and one guy in New York City. I made three trips. I'll try to cut it to, I made three trips to New York City. I drove from Boston to New York City three times, only to get the worst cath that's ever been delivered 
um, by some guy who looked like, you know, compared to Stanford's cath, which is like multimedia digital output with compression mm -hmm. and DFFR, they did none of that. It looked like the old Atari Pong or something, you know, like the old uh, <laughs> video games where there's just like one thing going back. To, now you're dating uh, yourself. Just like a little yeah. green. Yeah, yeah, I'm, 40, I'm 49, so it's like, but um, it was just silly. I was like, really? I drove for this and this is what you, and then, and then their surgeon afterwards said, you don't have a myocardial like, you don't have a myocardial okay like you have maybe an arm problem you should really see a kinesthesiologist a sports doctor because you mentioned some shoulder pain you know basic physical therapy an arm was, problem yeah and that was after Stan I, I said stanford already diagnosed it you know he's like no nah, stanford schmanford they don't know anything because a lot of doctors you know their egos are so big right not not all but that they just have this kind of thing where if any other hospital said this they say ah and they just you know they just do their thing so he blew it off and I got nowhere and which didn't help my case with my family either. You know what I mean? Cause there's, you know, still, cause they don't know. How do they know what I, you know, maybe I'm still making it up. And then I went to the Philadelphia guy, three trips, three, two, two, three trips there, two, maybe this was interesting. So I saw the gatekeeper cardiologist to get to the robotic surgeon. And my goal is to try to get robotic surgery. And I found these guys on the Da Vinci machine site. It's the machine they use for robotic called the Da Vinci. They can find a directory of surgeons there. And said Philadelphia, because nobody in Boston showed up So on that list. So I went to this guy, I won't name his name, but he was a top U.S. News and World Report top doctor. And so was the other guy in New York, too. And I went there and I, I told him the same thing. I think I've already diagnosed the myocardial bridge. It's on the scan. I'm holding it in my hand. Here it is. But I didn't know how to point to it. And he looks at it and he says, Rob, I'll be honest with you. I don't know how to read these for myocardial bridges. So, but I don't think that's your problem. And let me talk to the radiologist. Talks to the radiologist. Didn't even bring my skin with him. He's <laughs> just talking to them about the abstract. And long story short, um, comes back and gives me a call in the afternoon. He's like, it's not your problem. Thanks for driving down, but I don't think you have a myocardial bridge. You should probably go see a sports therapist, work on you know your rotator cuff or something. So again, just a complete bust. So I never got to see that surgeon at all on that trip. To cut that story, basically three months later, I finally pestered them enough where the surgeon He's a famous surgeon, actually. He's done over a thousand robotic surgeries. Finally agreed to talk to me. And and I drove back down there and I talked through traffic and everything at night. And I finally talked to this guy at a six o'clock appointment. Master surgeon. You know, he's got videos of himself online. And he was just perplexed and baffled by the whole thing. Um, and he said of scratches, you know, he's, and he comes back after looking at my videos. He's like, Robert, 99% of surgeons wouldn't touch this. And I'm and looking back, I'm like, are you kidding me? They've been doing this surgery for 50 years. And so here's yeah. this guy who's this master surgeon. So I was just like, oh, okay, I give up with this guy. So he just wouldn't do it. You can't change their mind. You know, if they're not going to do it, they're not going to do it. So I gave up and I went to Stanford. It was How, long, it was how much about, longer did you was, wait to go to Stanford? I was actually already, I, I actually had to go to Stanford four times because the timing was so bad with scheduling there. People kept being on vacation mm -hmm. over the summer and everything. So. So I was already two visits into Stanford when that guy finally agreed to talk to me, the, the Philadelphia guy. I'd already been to Stanford twice, I think, before that. So it was just a little bit more. Like I had each test in a separate, like I one, one time I just consulted, one time I had CT and stress echo, one time I had cath, and then finally I had surgery. So finally had the surgery in December, uh, three days before Christmas. And there's another really good dude named Paul Giordano on our site, who's also from Virginia, and also had the surgery, like I think, a day or two after I did. And that's yet another myth that we can bust, which is that young people 
can't possibly have symptoms from myocardial bridges because Paul was 20, I think 21, or he was just graduating from college about that time. And this is pretty wild because Paul, Paul's story is wild. Paul self-diagnosed. He figured this out by himself. And he's, he's I mean, he's, he's a physical therapist, I think. He's, he's, you know, he has a lot, he's a very in-shape guy. And so maybe he's very in tune with his body and research and all that, but he was able to self-diagnose and he got on our site and was asking questions. And by that time, you know, we knew a little bit more. So yeah, he, he was self-diagnosed, which is amazing that he did that at that age. So he had Stanford, he had surgery at Stanford too. I think his, some of his relatives lived out in California so he could stay with them. But, um, so I had the surgery yeah, and, uh, three or four people, all, we all had surgery in the same week, I think, or before Christmas, we did like 40 of them or something. It was crazy because that everyone wanted to get the end of the year deductible. They wanted to get the surgery before the deductible uh, restarted for the new year. So yeah. after the surgery, yeah, there was a lot of pain. You probably had the same thing, you know, post-op pain, right? Your chest has to heal. Did you have a sternotomy or the thoracotomy? I can't remember. I did. Yeah. Yeah. They went, they went this way or they went sideways? Yeah. No, they went yours. up and down. Sternotomy? Okay. Yeah. I had the thoracotomy right. where you go through the ribs and okay. that people have yeah, people ask that a lot, like, which is better? And I don't know which is better, but like to, the selling point for, for the sideways through the ribs was that it's a smaller incision, which it is. Uh, I think it's like maybe four inches roughly, depending on the person, whereas a sternotomy is mm -hmm. like a much longer incision. But there's a, there is a downside, which is notable, which is that um, the sternotomy, at least they're not cutting through muscle. It's more just through your bone, right? They go right through your sternum and kind of separate yeah. that. Whereas the thoracotomy, they don't go through bone, but they go through your pectoral muscle like a big chicken breast you know so it's like so that hurts you know like it's it's it still hurts a little teeny bit not i wouldn't say hurts but it's tender whatever you want to call it so that's something oh interesting well, you know? so um, this many years later it's yeah, still it's not tender like, for you still tender for sure yeah that's incision in the whole okay. area yeah it took a while to be able to lift weights and do stuff with that muscle it took a while okay. so that's like one more reason why like if you ask me people come on the site all the time and they say like what's the best way to get surgery I tell them, look, this is, and people don't always listen to me, but I say, I would do robotic surgery, you know, okay. not because of this person or that person or this or that, just because why go through all that suffering or that, all that pain? That's what it's made for. It's made to reduce the recovery time. I think people say a matter of weeks versus like over a year, you know, of really healing. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, so that's kind of how I had the surgery. And <laughs> after the surgery, I came back to Massachusetts. I had fluid in my lungs. Um, a lot of people get that. I, I ate a bit of fluid. It was causing me problems. Some other people have like a liter of fluid in their lungs. And that comes from the lung being deflated during surgery. They put like a, some kind of tranquilizer to get it out of the way and it deflates. Okay. And then somehow moisture condenses on that when it's, when it's deflated. So it's a common thing. And so they stuck, they stick a little needle in your back and then suck the fluid out at the local hospital. I did that in Massachusetts. So were you awake for that? It was, procedure? uh, I was awake and it was weird. Yeah, yeah, it was weird. That sounds and I had a, like I, a great time. Yeah, it was. It wasn't. A, it wasn't a party. And uh, you should have seen the guy who did it too. He looked like he was about to, you know, just like hanging out at a pool club or something, like drinking a beer, just like walking around like it's no big deal, talk, making jokes with people. And I'm like, and he sticks a needle right through my back. I was like, okay, just, you can do that too. All right. And then like oh five gosh. minutes afterwards, like five minutes afterwards, I was like, oh, I got through it. And then I had what's called a vagal reaction. Your vagus nerve goes nuts and your blood pressure drops to like 30 something. And I was like, oh my God. I had no idea what was going on. So that lasted about five or 10 minutes. It was, yeah, it was crazy. But uh, yeah, no, I, so I get out of there. But a lot of people have that fluid in the lungs. 
post-op. And that's, that's another big point we should, I wanted to, you know, make sure we mentioned is that if you, people always ask, well, how long should I stay after surgery around the hospital? You know, like a day, a week, you know, and Stanford told me, you know, like 10 days, be cleared to go. First, it's, it can be expensive, you know, Stanford's an expensive area, but if you can, I think it's good to stay for a couple of weeks, like 14 days, because that way, if any complications like that come up, they can just go right back to the people who did it and they're going to understand instead of having to explain it all to some random guy, you know, that the local hospital mm -hmm. or something like that. How long did you stay after your oper after operation? Well, so I had mine, you know, five hours down the road from where I live. I'm in, you know, the Tetons on the border of Wyoming and Idaho. And I went down to just south of Salt Lake City at Intermountain Medical. And I think I was only in the hospital for four nights post-open heart. And then they sent me on my merry way. But, you know, I just really bounced back. I mean, I had, you know, major vomiting afterwards because I had a major, major, major allergic reaction to the anesthesia. But then that subsided within 24 hours and they ended up releasing me early because I was doing so well. But, you know, it would have been, it was no problem for my husband to drive me right back down if I ran into any issues, which I did not. Hmm. So how, how far was that from your house? The, the place you actually five had hours. the surgery? Okay. Yeah, so, five so hours. So you were there in the hospital and they just went home, like straight back to your house? Or you hang out mm -hmm. in the hotel yep. in the area? Okay. Nope. Yeah. Nope. They just said, nope, you could go on back home. And, you know, I was really thankful I was able to do that because, you know, I had gone out to Stanford for all the testing and then they canceled my surgery due to COVID. And that was so oh, wow. deflating and it was, and I, I was about so symptomatic. What's that? Oh, wow. I remember that. Yeah. But I, I remember you being yeah. symptomatic. I forgot about the COVID part. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. So I, they yeah. had been doing unroofing surgeries all fall and then right. they canceled. I was like the start of where they put it all on hold again. But, you know, I was going to have to wait to do the dobutamine testing, which you have to do for myocardial bridging. Uh, I was yeah. going to have to wait. The next time they had an opening was in April. And I was like, I'm not going to live that long. Well, and it, right. it was really like, I could tell I was out of time. Mm. Wow. Wow. That's 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 wild. It got that bad that yeah. quick. Like it just dropped off. Oh yeah, like I went from yeah. work, you know, like elite athlete to not being able to wash my own dishes in my kitchen within a matter of days. And the oh. way I understand it is, you know, when like you've got a garden hose and you just let, yeah, you know, you're you let the water flow uh, flow through. But if you run over the garden hose enough with your car or bend it enough to stop the flow of water, that garden hose loses its pliability. And yep. then the water doesn't pass through the way it used to. Yeah. And so I see, I view my arteries as, you know, they were all little garden hoses passing mm. blood, uh, blood through to the heart. And finally on, you know, a one mountain bike ride, I, I, I looked back now and I could see I was getting more and more symptomatic, but I had been getting over a traumatic brain injury and I kept blaming that, but it was, mm. I think it was really the myocardial bridging because I was having more and more breathlessness, but it was yeah. the one day that I had, you know, had a heart attack while mountain biking. And that's when the arteries gave out and they never really quite recover. And then within a matter of a couple of months, they were really, it was like very little bit, very little water was getting through those garden hoses. Damn. And so it took, you, you actually had a heart them attack for them. Okay. You actually yeah. had a heart attack while mountain biking. Yeah. Oh, wow. And how? And I survived and I finished the mountain bike ride. That's the important thing, right? Because I had already gotten to the top and I was going to finish my ride. 
And I wasn't well, believing because why would a 42 year old woman who is in the t- best shape of her life have a heart attack? <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Exactly. But I was with my husband and both of us are wilderness are we're both like first responders and we yeah. oh, wow. uh totally ignored all the signs because like there's no way. We totally yeah. talked ourselves that, out of it. That that that's another you just brought up a whole bunch of points there. Like one being that, you know, that's that's a funny thing too. Like if you have other things going on with your health, you know, then it makes it more like we see this all the time on the site, right? People go well, I got this and this. I don't know if it's actually the myocardial bridge that's causing the symptoms because I also have this other thing over here or this or this. Okay. And a lot of times, yeah, it's you do have that and that, but it's this. It's also this too, you know. And and also doctors don't always connect the dots, you know. They'll say, hmm, you have a myocardial bridge. You also have these vasospasms. I don't know where they're coming from. Okay. It's like the bridge. Yeah. <laughs> they're caused by the bridge. The bridge, dude, you know? silly. Yeah. Like, where do you sure. think they're coming from? Yeah, because like you said, it's a garden <laughs> hose and then like you squash it every heartbeat for your whole life and then the mm-hmm. endothelium the, the lining of it basically doesn't respond it's supposed to just open when there's nitric oxide pass it's supposed to create nitric, nitric oxide and then expand when that's secreted but it just stops doing that so it just like a flat tire it just keeps collapsing and then your blood circulation gets cut off to your own heart so yeah mm-hmm. well, I, didn't, yeah, I, didn't, I, I didn't couldn't forgot. cook yeah I couldn't yeah. stand a shower. It was exhausting just to put clothes on. I too was a teacher at the time. And after the three weeks of school, once school started again, I mm. was so exhausting, exhausted walking from the silly parking lot to my building. And then I remember the very last day that I worked at the school, mm. I walked in and two of my coworkers looked at me and I was like, I cannot do this anymore. And they're like, you look like you're about to die. Like I was white. I couldn't breathe. My chest was killing me, you know, and, and by then I had already been in contact with Schnicker and she was working to get me in. I was just waiting for the phone call from them to schedule me. But I, I, I went to administrate the administration and I said, I, I can't do this anymore. I, I have to resign. So I had to quit wow. my job. Well, and then I just sat and waited was, for surgery like you. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much just in a holding pattern, you know, like just mm-hmm. surgery, 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 every night, like, okay, countdown and surgery. Yeah, it's unbelievable. And I didn't realize that. I didn't, I didn't realize you had a heart attack mountain biking and that you were teaching also. And then you you had to resign. I get, believe me, I get that. And it, yeah, that's the other thing too. Like you just said, it's it's the little things, right? It's not, you, you could probably do some exercise, but then all of a sudden you just walk from here to here. And it's like, somehow that's really exhausting. Just the small stuff. Yeah. Don't and don't is, ask but, me to carry yeah. anything in the process. Mm-hmm. I mean, and when we did totally. go to California, my husband was like wheeling me through the airport in a wheelchair i mean it was just like the thought of getting from one concourse to the next and then for them to cancel the surgery and i had to fly back home after the heart cast i was i yeah. found hell i, I found hell hmm. it sucks i mean yeah i i don't know i haven't had a heart attack that i so that's that's brutal yeah wow and then mm-hmm. so but i remember when when stanford shut down this it just went you know went cold turkey during covid for a while there they just weren't doing surgeries for yeah them. Six, six months or something, right? Yeah. Let's see. Me, I so they canceled me mid-December. And then mm-hmm. I actually, I, I didn't tell them that I found a different surgeon and had surgeries. And so mm-hmm. they called me in March telling me they would schedule me for April. And I was so relieved that I didn't wait because I don't think I, I know I wouldn't have survived. And I just thought to myself, there was no way I could, I, I, I wouldn't either died from 
you know, my heart fully giving out from lack of oxygen, or I wouldn't have just gone crazy and died from being crazy. Like mm. it's something else to have to sit there and wait for what is considered an elective surgery, but it certainly mm. does not feel elective. Like I think of oh. elective surgery as like a nose job, like, you know, plastic surgery or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. This was not elective in my point of view. No, given the fact that there's people having heart attacks and dying from this, we, we've seen in the news, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's, uh, just for anybody who's not familiar, we have a Facebook myocardial bridge support group site. It's got a, uh, a document that's 50 pages long. It's a frequently asked questions document. And at the end of that, there's, I put like 50 studies in there and there's an entire page or more worth of uh, reports of people who seem to have died from nothing else was found except the myocardial bridge. Yeah, that's not an elective surgery if you're trying to not have that happen. You know, it's like, it's like that's a right. serious surgery. Yeah. And that's the thing. Well, that, my that's, poor husband. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, doctor, we just have to keep spreading it. We, I think we've done a lot to spread awareness about it, really, in the last four years. But still, we, there's a lot of static. They have to like, a lot, a lot of uh, doctors just never really learned about the correct information in medical school. And so mm -hmm. you, have to, you have to kind of like, it, it's always a friction when, when the patient knows more than the doctor about a topic. You know, you're a teacher too, right? So like, I'm a teacher, you're a teacher. If you're a teacher, you know, you have the experience of getting your butt handed to you every once in a while, right? You come in, you think you know something, and then it turns out on that mm -hmm. particular point, actually the student knows something on that particular point that you didn't know. But it humbles you and you say, okay, now I know something I didn't know before. That's cool. That's the mud, you know, no big deal. But I don't think doctors get that, the sort of grounding very often, you know, where, where, where the, where, and so they may be a little more sensitive to it or something like that. So it's real hard for a patient to go in and have a doctor be wrong. And then the patient kind of knows they're right because they've done the research. It's all out there. I mean, we have the Wikipedia page, the Facebook site, everything. And the doctor just won't budge. Like we, we have many cases, you've, you've probably seen them, right? Where the, they said, I gave the doctor the, the video, the site, the myths, the this, and the doctor just literally refused to read anything. It gave him studies, gave him papers, didn't, wouldn't read it, you know? So it's like, yeah, it's like, uh, if they're not going to listen, you can't convince us, convince someone, you know? So, but, no. um, and yeah, yeah, that's the ego does not serve the patient one bit. Mm. It just doesn't. doesn't. Yeah. And you know, my husband, he still talks about how from that mountain bike ride until maybe about a month and a half after my open heart surgery, mm. he would wake up every night and make sure I was still breathing. Like that was our reality. And there was many nights where I would quite like I would go to bed and think to myself because I didn't want to alarm him. But I was feeling so bad. My heart was hurting so much. And I was just so I had all the symptoms. And I would think to myself, I hope I get to wake up tomorrow. Wow. And that just has, you know, I don't go to bed thinking about that every night still. But I would say at least once a week I wake up. And I'm like, cool, I got up today. I'm, I can, I'm awake. Like, I'm going to get up and do this thing called life. I get to get out of bed mm -hmm. and I get to pay bills and wash dishes and clean the toilet or go skiing, you know, whatever, whatever it is that I do with my days. But I just, I, you know, people's complaints now, I'm, I would, I think to myself, I'd give any, you know, I'm so thankful that I can have a complaint. I'm thankful that I can participate yeah. in life because it just felt like I was on the cusp every day of losing my life. And I, I don't know if you yeah. felt that way. I have. And, uh, and I, like, if I feel tired, I'm like, I don't know, should I go for a jog or not? I'm like, okay, there was time not that long ago when I was sitting in Starbucks for 15 hours a day 
you know, just sitting there uh-huh. because I couldn't do I couldn't do anything. I was just like, you know, so like maybe I should get to go for that jog, you know, like just be glad you can go for a jog, you know. So and and, I, and just to be clear, I, I exercise a lot. I go to the gym and run and stuff. There's still some issues. You yeah. Know, so tell us about your recovery. So you've had your surgery and mm-hmm. hung around Stanford, recovered, but then you had to yeah. have the fluid taken out of your lungs in Massachusetts, yeah. and, and then what? And that was pretty soon afterwards. Yeah. So <laughs> basically, and the funny thing is, before that school year started, I. I was talking to my relatives like, well, maybe you shouldn't work this year. And so it was maybe like, I wouldn't work at all. And I was like, well, that's going to be sitting around doing nothing all day. That's not going to be good either. So, so after the operation, I picked up a part-time job teaching IB geography at the International School of Boston. Got real lucky. Somebody quit. And luckily it was part-time. It was exactly what I needed, just part-time. It's just something I knew in my wheelhouse. I taught geography for a long time. And so 17 days after surgery, I went back into the classroom. And I didn't feel like going back into the class. <laughs> it was, I'm and it, thinking, it was January, wow, you, know? you are better than me. <laughs> I was no, not ready no, 17 I don't want to in any way make it sound like this was a piece of cake or something like that. It was literally like sleep all day, you know, like just sleep like a hibernating bear all day long because it's freezing in Boston also. And I was, my body, you know, your body gets like so, your body's just exhausted after surgery. Somebody just sliced you open. Yeah. So I'm just like sleeping all day, eating, and then... No, I think I got back in the car like 10 days after surgery. I probably shouldn't have, but I just drove a little bit. And so I'm commuting in and out of Boston like an hour each way to do this class, uh, these classes. And um, I would go up like one, I was exhausted. I would go up the first month or so, I would go up one flight of stairs, one flight of stairs. And my heart rate went through the roof. Like I would go up like 10 actual stairs and then I would stop and be like, Jesus Christ. You know, and it just like wait for it to come back down again. That went on for like the first month or so. And I remember thinking like, is this going to stop at some point? You know, like this whole thing with the heart, you know. And eventually okay. it sort of petered out like in the second month. Um, so that was a wacky, you know, it, it was a wacky, but there was a good, nice kids. And so it was an easier thing to do. And then by the end of the semester, you know, I, I was started to sort of ish, normally kind of ish, you know. But, you know, but people ask, like, how long does it take to recover from, I mean, really, like, at least a year, you know, to, to really feel half, half decent, you know, after somebody cuts you open like that, um, or longer, right. you know, so, but yeah, so, and then, and then, yeah, then I got the job in Panama over the summer off of LinkedIn, and then I came down here um, eight months after surgery, but, and yeah, I still couldn't lift weights, even after arriving in Panama eight months, nine months later, I still couldn't, couldn't do this. I could do other stuff, but I couldn't do the chest, you know, so. So now I can, now I can do all that stuff, but, but it's, it, it's a slow, <laughs> that's a slow, rec- I mean, that's why I tell, you know, robotic is, is a, it's an amazing technology. They make these little keyholes instead of slicing you open, they make little keyholes and go in that way with these micro tools and it's just much less invasive. So I'm like, that, yeah. that, that's what I wanted to do in the first place. I never got a chance, but I think it was literally like about a couple of months after I got my surgery that the first guy on our site popped in, hey, by the way, that, I had surgery at University of Chicago, with Dr. Balky, and I had robotic surgery. <laughs> so I was like a little smidgen yeah. too late. But um, yeah, so, and now there's this great guy in Georgia. Well, now he's in Georgia. He used to be in Philadelphia, right? Uh, Dr. Guy, Dr. Sloan Guy, who was a mm-hmm. former military guy, played college football, just looks like an all-around great dude. And he's in um, Georgia, just moved to Georgia Heart Institute, and he does robotic surgery. So, you know, that to me, Sounds like a pretty darn good option. I wish that was there when I was there. So, so yeah. So right, and now we have a doctor so in the southeast who does. You, people don't have to fly all the way across the country. Totally, 
yeah, you don't have to fly, spend all the money to stay in Palo Alto and all that stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's so I guess when I got on the website in May of or April, late April, 2018, right after being diagnosed. And this is the home, Facebook myocardial bridge support group that you're speaking of. Yeah. And people sometimes mm-hmm. they think that I created the site. I did not create the site. Um, there's a, there's another guy who created the site and it's awesome that he did years, years before I even got on it. And when I got on the site, I was the guy like people. I was the guy asking all the questions. I was the guy who knew nothing. And people like Perry Legree and then this mm-hmm. woman in Tr- Tracy Crozier, I'm not pronouncing your name right, were really helpful to me when I got on because they had both just did it themselves at Stanford. They both had surgery at Stanford. And they were so awesome in terms of helping me understand. In fact, when I first got on the Facebook site, Perry was literally, I don't know if you're familiar with Perry. Perry, Perry answers a lot of questions sometimes. He had just posting pictures of himself getting out of surgery and with, with Dr. Snicker right here, you know, him and Dr. Snicker together with the heart pillow and everything. And, and he was, his story is like, he had a massive myocardial bridge and he went in difficult symptoms and all that. He had a bypass, he had the wrong operation. He had a bypass done five years prior and didn't work because that's the problem with bypass. It can fail and it failed. And mm-hmm. in his, I guess it would have been his late, that was in his forties, his late thirties at the time. So he had to have a second open heart surgery. That's a, that's a bad thing to have happen, you know? So, and he's not the only person on our site who's had to have that. Uh, some other people are, went to Cleveland, they, they had the same thing. So all the more reason to make sure you do the right surgery. Don't let a doctor convince you to have bypass just because they feel like doing a bypass because they're more familiar with bypass. That's what happens a lot. Like these docs do like a thousand bypasses a, a day or something, you know? They're so used to doing bypass because it's such a typical operation that they just want to kind of go back to their default op and just do the thing they know. But that's not the, that's not the, the primary um, first-line treatment for myocardial bridges because you still end up having a bridge. You still have the same thing you had before. Right. Now you just have a bridge with a bypass. So you could do a bypass as a, as a, as a helper, like unroofing a, a, a surgery is the main surgery to do, and then do a bypass as well to give extra support. But a bypass alone can fail. And has failed people. So yeah, you don't want to, don't want to, because actually the guy I mentioned in New York, when I first went to him, he tried to, before he even saw me in the office on the phone, he's like, oh, I do a bypass, no problem. I do that. And doctors would often tell you too. They're like, oh, I, I do this all the time. And, and no, they don't actually do this all the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And like, what is their version um, of all the time? Yeah. Right. And the, the other big thing is, this is a big misconception. We actually probably make a video about this one too, but so Doctors would often tell people, well, I've done hundreds of these, you know, and it's not necessarily totally true. What they mean is that they've done incidental unroofings while they were doing something else. So there was a patient had like plaque or something, whatever else it was, another heart issue. They went in there and in the course of the operation, when they, when they opened the person up, they said, oh, look, there's a myocardial bridge. Um, and then they unroof it on the spot. And that's just an incidental finding within the larger operation. And what makes that different is that the big issue for most people is not doing the surgery, right? It's getting a green light. It's the testing. It's getting people to say this person needs surgery to convince that surgeon to do. Because a surgeon a lot of times is like, I don't know, I'm going to rely on what the other guy said. And they rely on somebody else to tell them the surgery is necessary. Yeah. Um, Which Stanford has like a team to do that, you know? Um, and some places, I won't have any names, but some places we, that we do a lot of surgeries now, they're not, they have a team and the team's not working real well. <laughs> so they don't, you know, there's like confusion in the team. They don't know whether to tell a person yes or no. So, um, yeah, that surgeon may have done incidental unroofings, but you got to get, that's like the guy in New York, he probably could have done the unroofing, but 
they were too inept with the testing to get me to the green light stage, even though Stanford had already right. diagnosed it. So, so that's the big thing is getting the green light, you know? But yeah, so I went to the next year, I guess, recovering and um, people, you know, I guess people ask like, okay, how much better are you? Uh, mm-hmm. Stanford's, Stanford says they did like a six month post, a six months post-op. They asked people the Seattle angina questionnaire, SAQ, which they said 80% of patients feel 80% better. That's, that's their general response that mm-hmm. they got. In my case, I would say I felt, you know, 50% better almost, you know, within the next month or so, it bar, aside from the pain, obviously I was having for the surgery itself. But in terms of the heart stuff, I would say, you know, I could, I could just, my heart gets getting more oxygen now, you know? So it was like 50% better. And then real slowly over the next couple of years, I'd say that all like a lot of the endothelial dysfunction started to heal itself slowly. And now I feel like 75% better or something like that, you know, 80 or something like that. So it's much more than it was, much better than it was before. We should probably talk about that, that the endothelial dysfunction, the myth of, so this is, this is one of the big myths that, that unroofing surgery doesn't work if you still have symptoms like right after your operation, like within the next six months or a year or something like that. There's like many holes in that. It doesn't, that, that, that doesn't make sense because uh, if you do an unroofing operation and they actually do it correctly, then you have no more myocardial bridge. So that, that part, something's better than it was before. You, did, you, had, you had a problem, something was squashing your artery. Now you don't have that problem. So that worked. That's a, but the reason people sometimes say uh, that they still have symptoms, which, which I had too, is because not, not because there's a myocardial bridge, but because like we talked about earlier, that garden hose has been getting pounded every heartbeat for the last whatever amount of years. And it damages the lining of the garden hose to where, and if you, especially if you're older, this is a bigger deal. It's got to heal. Right? If you're younger, it can heal quicker because you have less, it's called endothelial dysfunction because it's the endothelium is the lining of the artery and then it stops working correctly. It stops putting out the nitric oxide and it stops responding to the nitric oxide, which tells it to open up when you need it to open up and get more blood through. It just kind of, instead of opening up, it just collapses like a flat tire. And, that, and then that collapse causes spasms. So like it's supposed to open up when you, like, if you get stress or something, like excitement, playing a basketball game, artery is supposed to go like mm-hmm. this right? You get more flow, but instead it goes this, that's bad, you know? Right. So then you get less flow and then the artery itself spasms because it's not getting oxygen in itself. It goes like this. And then you're, you're, you can have like a mini heart attack, so to speak, or an actual heart attack. It's incredibly on, uncomfortable. Yeah. You can only imagine. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a myth that somehow, because you still have that, that means the surgery didn't work because that's not what the surgery is supposed to fix. It's supposed to fix the myocardial bridge. The other stuff, the endothelial dysfunction, is a question of your artery literally has to remake itself or the inside of the hose has to regrow. That takes like years to do that if you're, if you're older, but, but it does get better usually, uh, but it just takes yeah. years. I mean, it's not going to probably ever get back to perfect or, or brand new, but I'll take 75% over zero anytime, you know? So, uh, Same. Yeah. so yeah, yeah, for sure. Have you know, have you noticed that improvement too? That kind of, mm-hmm. I have, but the interesting thing is, so I, Stanford diagnosed me with moderate endothelial dysfunction mm-hmm. in the w, in the heart cath. And then right after surgery, when it was time for me to move from the ICU to the PCU, I had the choice of either walking or they were going to put me in a wheelchair. And I chose to walk. After, yeah. Okay. After, this, after my heart surgery. And mm-hmm. I can still remember... I, I immediately said to my husband, Jason, and the surgeon, I can tell 
you've saved my life. It was that dramatic of a difference. Wow. And I'm, yeah. And I'm so glad my husband is quite the photographer and captures all our moments really well. And I felt like I walked really fast from ICU Mm. to PCU. And (laughs) I I did not walk very fast, but in my mind, I was very fast because I felt that much better. Yeah. And I proceeded to have a pretty remarkable recovery until I really got the green light. And then I kept overdoing it. And I developed vasospasms in, I think we are thinking and developing microvascular disease. And so, you know, my recovery has been profoundly bumpy. And I also have continued to have like peripheral life stress. You know, my mom, I don't know if you remember, but my mom died, you know, nine weeks post open heart surgery. And that really did not help my recovery. The stress of that was really intense. And then, you know, I, I kind of, well, my body rejected the sternal wires. So I had to have my sternal wires removed. I remember that. I remember that. Yeah. yeah. So I just kept getting kind of pummeled. And, And this is something I've talked about in other episodes that will be on this podcast. I just interviewed my cardiac PT and we had the most amazing conversation about learning to listen to your heart. And I really have been in a master class of learning to listen to my heart and not overdo it. And I had to really let go of going back to my old life. Like I thought I could go back to being a ski instructor and mountain biking the way at the level that I used to, which I mean, was not like a competitive level, but I really enjoyed being out a lot. And Mm -hmm. I, my heart just has not given me the green light. But I kept pushing it, so it was making my symptoms worse. And my blood work around this time last year, you know, I was put in the hospital last Christmas. 2021, I was put in the hospital on Christmas night for elevated blood markers for heart failure. And I was really Good. starting to show heart failure. And I had mm-hmm. tried to go back to teaching skiing. My feet were swollen. I was out of breath. I was gaining a lot of fluid around my neck. And yeah, my heart just wasn't ready for any of that. And so. Did you have, I forget, did you have plaque and stuff like that also before that? No, no, I didn't. You didn't? I didn't. It was, it was just, I think maybe my heart is partially extra special. (laughs) I just tried to go back too soon is what my best guess is. And yeah, I went to the Mayo Clinic this past summer and then did a whole new workup mm-hmm. of everything and really took like a fresh look at my heart and the whole thing. And they were like, we would not have unroofed you. And I was like, well, I think you're wrong there because I felt immeasurably better after the surgery. How, how about that? How about that statement? I mean, we would not have unroofed you. I mean, really? It's like, really? I mean, this mm-hmm. is the one in Rochester, right? Yeah. And I yeah, love and I, them, I but they, I, I, I told talk, them they were wrong. I don't want to talk smack about it. Yeah, I mean, they have a record of like this is you're not the first. They have multiple people that they've turned away. Like, they're, they're, you know, I don't want to talk smack about hospitals on the show, but like, I don't know what's going mm-hmm. on up there because they keep turning people away. Like, they just told a person who obviously benefited from surgery, we wouldn't do surgery on you because you had a really deep myocardial bridge. That's the that's the mm-hmm. ultimate person you should do surgery on. What what was their reasoning for that? I'm just curious. Like, why would they say that? I don't 
remember now, I think I shut them down before they could even go there. Cause I, that is just yeah. something I know to my core that saved my life. I think there was maybe some, you know, hypothesis about screwing up the electrical, you know, circuitry of the heart, which probably has some bearing. And at the time, my heart rate was, I, I was having palpitations and vasospasms, and there was some concern I was going into an arrhythmia, but there hadn't, an arrhythmia had not been found yet, but my heart was was fluttering and it was really uncomfortable. But now I've been on a slow acting nitroglycerin and I'm doing so much better. I mean, I'm not the fastest person in the mountains, but you know, I'm, I don't care about that. I just want to be able to climb mountains again and ski and do all the things that I did with my friends and my husband. Mm. And I'm able mm. to do that now just at a much slower pace. Mm. So yeah. I don't know. I think my point of view is it, it's just so much bigger than the unroofing and there's so much opportunity to really zoom out to 50,000 feet and look at your life from 50,000 feet. And it's such a lesson in like, you know, we've been given this second chance. I, I consider mm -hmm. this my bonus life. Yeah. I'm on bonus time. Yeah, That's, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so I've also, I'm no longer really wringing my wrists anymore over my heart. If I have a rough day, I have a rough day. If I, if my heart skips a beat, it skips a beat. And I know when I need to go to the ER now and when I don't. And mm. I still have days where I have some ER level pain, but I know mm. I don't have a blockage because I've had three heart caths now. And I I just know that my heart is telling me to knock it off. I've given my mm. heart an avatar and uh, and it's its own little personality. And Blocking yeah, exactly. And I I just know when it's telling me to knock it off. Yeah. So that's how I that's how I describe how I'm doing. Well, I didn't know that they had that mayo visit and all that stuff. Yeah. yeah. One little side note on what you were saying about the test you had no plaque and everything. I've discovered, I mean, there's, there's other stuff that, that can, you know, uh, stiffen your arteries and things like that, that doesn't come up on a lot of these tests. For example, there's this big one It's called, um, lipoprotein A. Mm -hmm. There's some famous, famous trainer guy. I think he was Oprah's trainer, whoever that guy is, who had to literally stop doing a lot of things because he had this massive amount of lipoprotein A in his arteries. It's a huge thing. It's one of the main markers of heart disease, but it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not calcium score. It's not the usual cholesterol plaque. It's, it's just a separate thing, lipoprotein A. How do you measure that? And how do you know? There is something, there's some kind of newer test that does, but usually they don't, it's not commonly done for everybody, but they, you can do it. You can test for it. It's like LP parentheses A, lipoprotein A. There's something else called, well, there's, there's uh, fibrin. There's just fibrin. It's just stuff. It's like the same type of stuff that makes like, blood clots and scabs and things like that on the inside of your arteries when they get uh, uh, abrasion your body puts that stuff on there and normally it takes it out too with these enzymes they eat it up um, like protein eating enzymes but as you get older it just kind of accumulates so there's this stuff called seropeptase you ever heard of this enzyme which could be used for anything it's a protein eating uh enzyme and it, you just take it with, without any food goes off into your system it becomes a systemic enzyme through your bloodstream and it eats that stuff right up so it's I've been taking that for years, actually. I think I've had a really big problem with that before. I think my arteries are messed up, but I took so much of that stuff, I think I eat a lot of that stuff right up. So seropeptase, it's it's a big time, you know, high, high potency enzyme that eats, uh, eats up fiber. 
Uh, but that's not just for myocardial bridge patients. That's for anybody in general. But mm-hmm. so yeah. But um, so there's other things, you know, besides just the usual cholesterol and calcium plaque that can stiffen arteries and things like that. I also do right now. I'm doing this. I just literally just started this two weeks ago. Uh, I forget if I messaged you about it. The EECP treatment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was um, hoping yeah. you would share with our audience what you're up to to continue to help you heal. As well, yeah. So. I'm doing here in Panama. It's not that complicated. You know, you just get up on a table and basically the general, you, you have to kind of see it. Uh, if you look online, it's EECP, electro something, something, ca- counter pulsation. And all it is is basically like, it's, a kind of, it's actually invented in China. It's a very holistic kind of like solution. It's not, it's not invasive. They don't have to go into your body or anything. And you spend an hour each session, 35 sessions, 35 hours. Basically, you get up on a table and those inflatable kind of cuffs that you get for your blood pressure, you know, they inflate. It's kind of like that, except they put those on your legs, like your your uh, calves and your thighs, not your feet. And they hook up, you know, the nodes to your chest, so it's nose when your heart's beating. And basically, you just lie there, and then every time your heart beats, it sends a signal to make these cups have like a high pressure inflation, like this. And they basically squash your legs, and that sends squeeze. It's like a sponge; it squeezes the blood out of your legs, makes it go up towards your chest not not like a huge gush it just moves back like a little bit each time so your heart's making the blood go one way and your through your bloodstream and then it goes back the other way a little bit and the, uh, the general idea is that that causes that blood to like uh in, the total amount of volume in your upper body to increase so all these arteries up here which don't normally he was explaining it like they don't normally get expanded because um they keep emptying out into the heart but now they do so it stimulates their growth yeah so it's, it stimulates like nitric oxide production stimulates the endothelium to to grow and it also this is crazy part it's, if these are the arteries as they started it's it stimulates the growth of new like new branches like new extension arteries off of those which have to be healthy because they're, they're not there's haven't been around before they're brand new so it's pretty wild but um, yeah, so I've done it for, for for nine times so far, and and why so far are you doing this? I'm doing yeah because I had I was diagnosed with severe endothelial dysfunction um, by Stanford before the op, and which means I had lots of spasms, and I still have spasms now, but they're nothing like they were before, and because I also was diagnosed with microvascular disease as well, MVD, yeah. which means the smaller vessels, you know. So I forget if that was severe or moderate, but it was definitely there. But like I said, so that that's why I'm taking it. And I, I still have issues with, you know, just general, you know, part of it too is, uh, this, this is sometimes gets forgotten. I think this point is that, so I wish I had my pictures, my, my that old Chinese film here, but uh, so basically if your artery, the, the, the one that people uh, focus on most with myocardial bridges is your LAD, right? Your left anterior descending artery. And so that's, that's the one that's, that feeds the left ventricle of your heart, which is where the blood comes out from to your whole body. So that's a real important artery. So mine, like if you look at the scan, it was stuck inside of the, the latter half of it basically was stuck inside of a muscle, heart muscle for my whole life. So if you look at it, it comes down like a nice tube, like, you know, like a regular tube. And the bottom half down here is before surgery. It looks like somebody's stepping on it. Like literally it's like, like it goes from about that thick to about that yeah. thick. And the, do- the doctor in, uh, in Philadelphia, the guy who wouldn't do it, he said he wouldn't, nobody would touch this. He comes back from the, from the video and he's like, he's a kind of a no nonsense you know, guy, he's like, you have the artery of a small old woman. I'm like, thank you. Appreciate it. <laughs> oh, but, reassuring. You know, that, yeah. He's like, I was like, 
an old woman. It's like, you know, small old woman. No, small old woman. But like the first part's great, the top of it. Then the second half is really, really skinny. So I don't know if it's any bigger now, now that it's not in the heart muscle anymore. I hope so, but it's just small, you know? So you need more auxiliary. Apparently they, they call them, mm. what's the word? Not corollary, but like helper arteries. You can grow new other arteries to branch out. Secondary to arteries. With them. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so that's part of what I'm doing. And I, I've already seen some benefits. There's only been, they say the first 10, you notice I've done nine. So I've seen some, but, but the cool thing is that you do it 35 times, but it really stimulates the body to, to do this, to make these new arteries that keeps going for like, I think months after you finish the last one. So it's like a process that your body gets uh, sort of pushed into, you know? So, so yeah, so I'm, I'm hoping that that's going to keep improving so far. So good. So how many more, how many total treatments do they recommend for the EECP? The typical number is 35. And I've only done nine, so for nine, each, each one's an hour. So mm -hmm. I pay here in Panama. It's like I, the guy I'm doing it with is the guy who brought it to Panama like a decade ago, the first one to do it. So it's like a hundred dollars a session times thirty five, thirty five hundred dollars, which is a lot, but it's at okay. the same time it's like nothing compared to a heart operation. So oh um, yeah, and it's yeah. your health. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, 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 wow. It's a deal. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Before we hang up, I. Want to make sure we cover a little bit more about a Facebook group. So yeah. I continue to think about social media and its role in saving my life. And I think about the day that it was in early August where I thought, I wonder if there's a support group for myocardial bridging. And the only reason why I knew about it was because my surgeon, or sorry, not my surgeon, my first cardiologist I saw told me he was going to go looking for it because he was suspecting that's what it was. Hmm. And then he found Good it. Good for him. Good for him. Wow, jeez. Well, and then I read my own report and found it. And then he still told me that I just had anxiety. Oh, and he blew him. me off. <laughs> okay. And he's I... Got right, exactly. So I typed in myocardial bridge into Facebook just to see if there was anything out there because I was so new to it. And thank goodness this group existed and i just want to debunk the the myth that all of social media is toxic and bad because i can think of so many people who i've spoken with on our group site the myocardial bridge support group site that have said it, this facebook group saved their life here in 2023 right mm -hmm. like it's mind-blowing to me that facebook was what helped me advocate for the help that I eventually got that saved my life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so totally. you are now. Help, help me too. Yeah, yeah. Right. But, and now you give yeah. back and you're the administrator. And we're, I, I may got that you just get busier and busier with it because I just see the amount of members we have now versus when I joined in 2021. So tell me a little bit about that. Tell me about your role and what you see and what you are witness to. Cause I don't, I don't go to it that mm. much right now because I'm frankly kind of tired of my story and I just trying to yeah. go forward. But when I have the bandwidth, I do I do log in and try to add my two cents if I think it's needed. Mm -hmm. But tell me tell me about what you do now to maintain that site. Yeah, it's been a unexpected thing, I guess. It's you know like okay, so here's me, the guy on the steps of the Chinese hospital, alone on a sea of marble, with no, no idea what the heck's going on. And that was like four years ago. And now I'm the guy that people ask questions to on the Facebook site. You know, like there's 1,700 people on our site. And I've probably talked to 
600 of them personally on chats, like, like people in Pakistan, people in India, people in Ireland, people in, I mean, whatever, you know? So it's like, okay, you, that happened, <laughs> you know, like, I don't know anything from, right? So how does that, how did that journey take? So yeah, basically part of it is that I got on the site having no idea what I was doing and uh, was like asking Perry the Great, was asking Tracy Crozier, anybody. And, you know, by the way, we should give a massive shout out to, uh, to Donna, Donna Miranda, who was the nurse at Stanford because she's oh, like, she's, amazing. Uh, she's like a uh, 10 time all-star. Yeah. She's just like, she also teaches nursing, by the way. She's a nurse at Stanford, but she teaches nursing. She, I believe, is the one who, who mentioned towards the very beginning, she's like, we have, there's a site out there on Facebook, you know, that our patients tell us about, you should probably check it out. If she hadn't said that, it would have been months before I, you know, it just, I just would have been a slower process. And because I got on it early, the, the, the ball started, you know, the, the ball started rolling. You know? But yeah, kind of what happened, I guess, was that I was on it. This is like four, four years, you know, four and a half years ago, there were probably like 200 people when I got on and it was like, now there's 1700. So I think basically at the beginning, I was asking tons of questions and that, and then I would go, I went to so many, you know, I went to so many doctors. I drove to Philadelphia twice. I drove to New York three times. I got stupid information. I knew it. I came back and asked people, is this right? I know it's not right, right? They're like, no, it's not right. That doesn't make sense. I went to Stanford four times. When I was at Stanford, I came, I'm also a journalist too. So I came in with a kind of an educator, teacher, journalist mindset, asking, probably pestering her with questions. She's probably like, get this guy out of here. He's asking me too many questions. So I asked all these people questions and asked questions on Facebook and, and looked stuff up. And it got to be a point where I started answering other people's questions, you know, just naturally they had the same questions I did. And then that just built to where I think it was during COVID somewhere in COVID. Or no, actually, no, I take that back the year before that, like 2019, the year after the operation. Part of it was just like, there's so many questions. I used to just write a frequently asked questions document to save people the time of answering the same questions again and again. You know what I mean? Like just, just out of uh, convenience. So I started with like a couple of pages. Now it's 50 pages long, you know, so. It makes it makes life a lot easier. You just say, read that, you know. Do you have um, a table of contents? I haven't looked. <laughs> there, there, there's a table of contents. Yeah, yeah. We should probably get somebody to make it clickable or something. But yeah. Um, and it's got like all kinds of myths and studies and you know, where to go. And it's got a surgeon. That's another thing. Like at the beginning it was just Stanford. That's, you know, that's where to go. And I had my operation at Stanford. And now no one else knew where to go for surgery. Now there's 20 something doctors who have done this surgery on the site all over the world, all over the U.S. All over. So that's, that's a big, you know, improvement. But 20 is not very many. It should be 300, right? Like, but yeah, exactly. And, mm -hmm. and there's probably another 300 out there we just don't know about that have done some unroofing at some point, you know, but okay. nobody bothers yeah. them. So that just kept spiraling. The, the FAQ went from 15 to 20 to 50, then it's 50 pages. But one massive thing, I don't know if a lot of people realize this because uh, it kind of came and went, was during COVID, uh, which is the following year, 2020, I was teaching here in Panama. You know, you're sitting around your house doing COVID, right? Like like February, I mean, uh, March or April of, of 2020. And yet another person got on the site, you know, I think and, and said, well, my doctor denied me surgery. He says it doesn't, myocardiopathy don't cause symptoms. I'm like, oh my, this is ridiculous. Like what is going on out there? And then some, somebody posted a video. Somebody posted, somebody posted a video of a guy. I, I don't, I'm not trying to, you know, put anybody on blast here, but it was a guy from England, a doctor in England, who kind of one of these guys that, you know, your friendly cardiologist type of a guy, you know, just trying to make him some videos of different conditions, his expertise. 
And he made a video about myocardial bridges. And I'm watching this thing. I'm like, like on the most important points, like the fact that bridges, why bridges cause symptoms, he was dead wrong. Like he had been not only wrong, but he was completely backwards. And I had been talking about this myth for the last like year on the slide. I'm saying it's a myth. It's a myth. It's a myth. And I said, oh my God, I wonder where he's getting this from. Where, where could he, like, why is a doctor making this? Like he's making, he's going out of his way to make a video about a myth. Like why? So I said, I wonder where it could be. So I Googled, like, where could it be coming from? And I first took I, I, the Wikipedia page. And I read the Wikipedia page. I said, this is all wrong. Who made this? So somebody had put, like, the main falsehoods about myocardial bridges right on the Wikipedia page. And doctors around the world, like, you just said the power of uh, social media, right? Well, guess what? A lot of doctors mm-hmm. get information from Dr., Dr. Google and Dr. Wikipedia. And they were, t- they were basically looking at Wikipedia and then denying patient surgery based on what Wikipedia said, that, right? And I, I just, That's this organic light bulb went off in my head. It's frightening, right? So right there in the next couple of weeks, I just, okay, I got to write, I was just COVID, you know, so you're just hanging around. So I just rewrote the whole thing. I just erased the entire Wikipedia page, started from scratch, and I rewrote the entire thing. And then I sent it to Stanford, because I, well, I know Dr. Snicker and, and Donna. And I said, okay. I said, look, I rewrote this whole thing, but I want to make sure it's right. Can you take a look? All the studies, all the little scientific points that I said and all this, can you make just double check? It took about a week, got back to me. Mm-hmm. She made three or four edits or something and now it's changed. So like now I, I think that was that a big, it's kind of a subtle thing in the background, but I think that kind of took the bad info off the table, like the doctors were looking at, um, yeah. so, at least in some parts. That was, that was a, I think that was big. Because now, now we can refer patients, like we can say, look at the FAQ or look at that and we don't have to be like, but, but don't ignore that part. You know, just don't look at that part. Just, you know, we can say, yeah, look at that. And it makes sense. You know, so, yeah. So. Well, I just thank you for your service. I mean, it's such an act of service mm-hmm. to do what you have done. And, you know, thank you for helping me. Thank you for helping all the others. You are contributing so much. And the biggest piece of advice I've been giving out lately is, like I just celebrated two years of my own regime mm. and I got together with a few friends yesterday and I was telling them, you know, I said, the reason why I had you all specifically with me to celebrate is because I remember how each of you validated my experience. Mm. You just sat there with me in the muck and listened and cared for me and checked on me. And you listened. You didn't try to make it better. You just said, I'm here. And I remember you did that for me. And that's what this the support group does on Facebook. It's like, here's this container that you can find all the information you need. You can reach out to other people. You can hear other people's like real-time stories. And it's so validating to know that you aren't alone. And these specific friends I was with yesterday, I never felt alone because of them. And I think that is so important in healing is is when you know you're not alone, that you can go through something really shitty and hard Mm. and not have to do it alone. Mm. That's this Facebook group. And I'm not on Twitter, but I know that you have a Twitter for Myocardial Bridge. 
correct? Yeah, we, we have just uh, MB Research Info is the is the handle, MB Research Info. It's just we okay. just post studies and updates from our site and just stuff like that, mm -hmm. you know, just like information. Great. But yeah, but I know I know. Great, it's, thank yeah, you. I, um, that's another way of just, because I post studies on the Facebook page, then I'm like, well, why does only this group get to see it? We'll just put that for the whole world, you know, so. But no, I mean, it's, mm -hmm. like I said, um, I know exactly what you mean, the validation. It was me. I got, you know what I mean? I was me on the site four years before that. So I was just, I was on the other end of it, you okay. know? So how could I forget that? You know, social media is a powerful thing, you know? So it's like, is that the many people that get a chance to like help somebody in Pakistan, you know, like with a life changing, you know what I mean? Who, who's in that same situation that, that you were in before and, and they're coming to you on the mm -hmm. site. It's like something about it. Just, you just, you just know you're making a difference in helping people. It's, it's a good, yeah, I know, you know, you're a teacher too, right? Yeah. So you know what that's like, but. So that's a, it's a cool thing for, for me to be able well, to Well, and that's the point of this podcast. It's another way, and it's not just for myocardial bridge. It's for anyone who needs any kind of open heart surgery. But you don't have to do this alone. And I hope that those that listen to our episode today, you know, that are going through the myocardial bridge journey, take it from two people who fought tooth and nail to make it through the medical system, but we did it. And look at we look at us now. You're thriving in Panama. Mm -hmm. I'm feeling good enough to. I'm writing a book and doing this podcast. Like there is life after a really tough journey, and it actually can be really beautiful mm -hmm. and maybe even better than before. Mm -hmm. And you bring up a good point that you talk about your, your your new life or your second life or your extra life. You know, and that's that's how I feel too. Mm -hmm. It's like bonus life. Yeah, and, and it, it's it, it's also the like. It, it never ceases to amaze me like that I went through 40, whatever amount of years, 44, 45 years. Uh, my birthday is April 30th. So I was diagnosed like before that, but um, without knowing this, do you know what I mean? Like this, this almost like something that now, cause now I, I spend so much time on the, on the Facebook side. It's like that surgery was such a big deal in my life. And I just walked through that 40, whatever years of this serious heart issue without knowing it. So I, I'm connected to your point. Like if you're somebody out there, like it just, it just, kind of a lesson, right? For life. Like there's people out there with, with myocardial bridges and all kinds of other stuff out there who it's just having a hard damn time. Do you know what I mean? And it's like, cut them a break, you know? And I, I probably not the best, yeah. wasn't the best at that growing up. Yeah. I wasn't the best at cutting people a break, you know, mm -hmm. but it gave me a, oh, I wasn't either. Yeah. So <laughs> can I tell you a funny story? It's just one of those things. So I came out of surgery uh, and I was staying at the Hampton Inn, I think, in uh, Mountain View, whatever it was, near Palo Alto. And I just thought it because it illustrates the point I wanted to make. And and uh, I looked like garbage because I hadn't had a shower. You can't shower the day before surgery. You can't shower for days after surgery. So I'm mm -hmm. I look like garbage. My hair is like the mad yeah. professor and back to the future. Oh, we're beauty yeah. pageant level. Beauty yeah. pageant level when you're going yeah. through open heart surgery. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I'm all like bumbled up and it's like wintertime. It's December and I'm walking around like kind of like waddling around the parking lot. My my chest is, I'm on six different painkillers, you know, so I probably look like a garbage. And I walk into a Chinese restaurant in Mountain View. And Mountain View is like one of these like tech, you know, Silicon Valley type of places with a lot of money. And I'm like, I walk into this Chinese restaurant and the guy, I'm thinking I just want to get to the, I want to like make it to the counter to be able to ask to see the menu. Like, because I'm like walking real slow, you know. And the guy, a guy comes over to me, points at me like, like get out, like you get out of here. And I'm like, I was confused because I'm also on painkillers. I'm like, am I hallucinating here? Is this, was this guy actually talking to me? 
And mm-hmm. he did it. Again. I was like, I kept walking. I thought maybe he'd get the wrong person, somebody behind me or something. <laughs> He's like, you. I'm just like, what? You know? And he threw me out of the restaurant. And I couldn't even, it took me a while to figure out what the hell wow. was even going on, right? Yeah. I realized he thought I was a homeless person, like stumbling off the street because I probably looked like a homeless person. You know? And I was like, oh, damn. Okay. But, that, that, but my point is that that is one time for me. Do you know what I'm saying? Uh-huh. And it's, it's a, it's a uh-huh. point, it's a, but this, it's every day for some people. Do you know what I mean? Because like, it's yeah. a point that, that struck me a, like, a while ago that like a lot of times the people who need help the most are the people who are grumpy. They feel like garbage. You know, they're irritable. They have anxiety. Uh, they, they do freak out when, they, when nothing's happening. Um, they're not feeling right. They don't look right. Maybe they screw up, you know, like they, they look like there's something wrong. Yeah. And so they're, they're often the people we don't want to help. Like the people we, that need help the most, the people who don't get, we pass over, we want to help somebody who's successful. Do you know what I'm saying? So it just struck me because then it, that was me getting it on the other end of it. So it was like, okay, you know, so, but there's all kinds of people out there who just get skipped over, passed over, you know, nah, you don't have a problem. There was this and there was that. And, and yeah, so it just kind of opens your eyes, makes you a little bit more mature, you know, um, to go through stuff like that and uh, this is kind of a hard surgery and everything and makes you appreciate oh, all the yeah. people who go through stuff like that as well. And I say that I have a much more open-hearted life. Mm. I find that I'm so much quicker to love and quicker to forgive and quicker to meet people where they're at. Mm-hmm. Whereas before my heart was literally caged. Yeah, I could see it. Because I think uh, in some of us also, we should say that, you know, Mark Hardy Bridges, Stanford, Stanford believes that they're, that they're uh, hereditary, that they're um, passed on in family, run in families. That's the, their words. It's, hard, it's impossible almost to prove that because you'd have to have like generations of dead people and get their hearts and see, right? But, but they, they've had multiple, uh, there, there's been multiple parents and kids who both had myocardial bridges at the same surgery at Stanford, for example. I, and, and I've seriously almost convinced that certain people in my family, you know, had it so or have it. Um, and maybe in your family as well. We will never know, maybe in a lot of cases, but. So, yeah, so like a lot, of, it's like a lot of people we might have grown up with. Some of the people on the site may have members of their, their parents or their uncles and aunts or brothers and sisters might also have a myocardial bridge. It might also have anxiety, may also be irritable or feel tired and nobody knew why. And so, yeah, so, you know, oh, you're just lazy or you're just anxious or you're just a hypochondriac and this and that, you know, so yeah. all these things, but it just kind of scrapes and a little, a little deeper. And like you're saying, uh, uncages your heart. That's a good, I like that, that metaphor. Mm-hmm. Well, I've really appreciated your time today. Well, thank you for having me on. It's just a great idea to have this podcast. And uh, honestly, you know, it's like of all the people on the site, you had a really bad case with myocardial bridge. You had a heart attack on a ski slope, was it? Or uh, a mountain bike? Mountain biking. Jesus. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, yeah. so it's like one of the things I noticed from your case, like, when you got, on, I remember when you got on the site, is that you kept persevering through it, and you kept asking questions and pressing forward and stuff. And it's like such a, it's such a lighthouse, you know. It's such like a, a light that people can follow. You know what I mean? They just keep pressing forward because you got the surgery, you know. Even though, despite the damn COVID, and and the fact you couldn't get that hospital, this the doctors told you no, and it's like you know, that's that's an amazing achievement to have to and then come out the other side like this and be making a podcast. It's like. I, it helps inspire me, honestly. So I really appreciate you doing that and, and well, having thank this you. podcast. It didn't occur to me to give up. 
Yeah. <laughs> did cross my mind. <laughs> yeah. I don't give in very easily, almost to a fault, like I said. Yeah. But that's good. Oh, well, thank you so much. And that's the show for today. Thank you for spending part of your day with me. The Heart Chamber exists because of you. If you find value in this podcast, consider donating to this cause. Go to theheartchamberpodcast.com and go to the donate link. And hey, while you're there, feel free to leave me a voicemail. I want to hear from you. Lastly, don't forget to leave a review and make sure you subscribe so you never miss another Tuesday edition of The Heart Chamber. Thanks again. Have a great week. And I'll be back next week with more stories of open heart surgery and recovery.